last week I indicated to you that today I was going to be starting a series um, on wisdom, and, and the title of this series is The Beginning of Wisdom. And today I want to talk actually about the aspect of what it means to have a proper knowledge of the Holy One. How many of you know we live in interesting times right now? It's, it's interesting. It's not only interesting in our community, it's, it's interesting in our nation, it's, it's interesting in our world. And we are all discovering that this particular stage of life for us calls for great adaptability. There's a lot of adjustments that we're making on one hand, and, and we need to do those things. On the other hand, we as Bible-believing Christians also understand that there are some things that in the middle of this adaptable culture are things that we absolutely will not let go of and that we will not compromise in. And there's a, a passage of Scripture. For those of you that have been joining us in reading through the Bible, from the beginning of the year we've had these daily readings, and, and I know that in my group I think we have 60-something people that have been month to month. There was a time a little bit earlier where in an Old Testament passage it talked about uh, the sons of Issachar, and it says that they understood the times and that they discerned the times. It continued to say that, that they were able to discern the times so that Israel would know what it ought to do as a nation. And it was important that we discern the times, that we who are children of God discern the times so that we would know what we ought to do in this season. And I believe that we have to continuously evaluate and understand the times which we exist because when we do that, we understand that there are necessary adjustments that relate to the times that we are in, that help us in communicating the truth in the times in which we live. The message remains the same, the message of Jesus Christ. He is the only hope. He is our one hope. He is our true God. It remains the same, but all of us are recognizing in this particular society that we live in that we can change the method of delivery. In fact, Culture has changed and caused that, and technology changes and causes that. Access to information changes. Society changes. And in the middle of all of this, God has called us to live for such a time as this. Now, there's an aspect of me that have at time to time asked God, why are you doing all of this? Why are we living in, in such a time of this pandemic? And, and I've almost begun to turn to the... To the other side of it and say how great it is, it is that God has chosen us as a church and us as believers to live in this time of great uncertainty because we have an absolute answer of certainty to all of those that are living in fear. One of the changes that has taken place, and many of you may recognize it, is it used to be that the pastor was the singular voice shaping and fashioning spiritual minds that were a part of his flock. But here's what I've discovered over the past few weeks. The access to so much information, 24-hour news cycles, so many public speakers, online pastors, that now discipleship is taking place, spiritual thought and formation is being influenced by many, many voices. And all of these platforms give people the ability to speak into people's lives, to give spiritual nourishment. And it has created for us an inconsistency of information. We are living on information overload in just about every area of our life. 
One of the side effects of this is that it has caused people to create their own theology. They take pieces of information from here and pieces of information from there, and they begin to formulate what they believe God is like and in turn how I should then live for God based on all of these different pieces of information. And so today we find ourselves in a place where battle of faith is a battle of the mind. It literally is a battle of the mind of what do we allow to influence us and the way that we think. And this is where transformation is taking place. And so this has been the reasons why I felt we need to launch for these next few weeks into an understanding of what is wisdom. How do we live with wisdom in a world that has lost its mind? How do we as the church live that out? So, Father, as we come before you today, in these next few moments, God, would you give us the ability in some of our cases to put down preconceived ideas about you and let you really speak to our hearts about who you are? In other cases, there are people that have begun to formulate theology that they are living by that may not be founded upon truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us into truth because that's what you promised us that your Holy Spirit would do. And so we pray that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 9. There's a verse in chapter 10 that I would really like to have a foundational thought for some things that we'll be talking about these next few weeks. And the scripture says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We had a family that attended our church for about three weeks as a guest some time ago and after they had been here for about three weeks on a Sunday morning they asked if they could speak to me after church and I told them I would be glad to have that conversation so we went into my office and we sat down and and the conversation began to develop it was apparent to me that they had had some pretty strong beliefs that they had held for a long time that were being challenged by what the Word of God was being spoken to them as I preached and at one point, they said, okay, we, let me just put it this way. Here is what we believe to be true. Do you support our beliefs by the way that you teach and preach the Bible? And my response to them was, before I answer that question, may I ask you a question that may help clarify some things for me. Are you looking for a church and a pastor that will preach and confirm a theology or a belief system about God that you already have formulated, or are you looking for a church and a pastor that will preach what the Word of God says so that your life and your practice of theology may be formed or reformed or conformed or transformed by the Word of God? And they sat there and they were smiling a wonderful family and they said at the end of it it came down to this they said listen we love the people here we love the way that we are treated here we love the way the worship team leads in worship we love the life with which you deliver the messages we just don't like what you say <laughs> and ultimately they were uncomfortable with the convicting power of the holy spirit 
and they admitted that they were more interested in finding a church that would confirm what they wanted to believe was true more than they were willing to let the Holy Spirit lead them into what truth really was. And they ended the conversation with this sentence that I have never been able to get out of my mind. They said, it's just more convenient to our life this way. It's just more convenient to our life this way. I would love to tell you that this is an uncommon occurrence, but this is symptomatic of an unteachable spirit that is going to lead many people to an eternity separate from God because they will have formulated in their own mind what they want God to be like and what they want their relationship with God to be like and how they want God to respond to them. And as a result of that, it's not really based on a true knowledge of God. It's based on a conglomeration of things that they've created their own theology out of. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12. And I'm reading this out of the Amplified Version. It says, Do you see a man who is unteachable and wise in his own eyes and full of self-conceit? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, what's really fascinating about the placing of this particular verse in the 12th verse of this chapter is that this comes after 11 straight verses in Proverbs 26 on how to identify and stay away from fools. And at the end of all of that, what we conclude when it states this is that number one, don't be a fool. And number two, being unteachable is worse than being a fool. In the Bible, in the book of Job, and Proverbs, and Psalms, and Ecclesiastes, we would categorize these books as the poetic and, and wisdom books of the Bible. And there's a unifying theme of Proverbs that wisdom for a right way to live, and that wisdom begins with, number one, a proper knowledge of who God is, and then, number two, a humble submission to God then flows from that knowledge of Him into every area of our life. And so the wisdom in Proverbs, it, it covers topics such as family life and, and youth and sexual purity and marital faithfulness and honesty, hard work, generosity, friendship, justice, righteousness, and discipline. It's an intensely practical book that leads us to a profound view of who God really is. And we are taught, and this is, this is important for you to know, especially in the American culture that we live in, we are taught that wisdom, rather than being tied to intelligence, wisdom is not tied to one's level of education. It is directly tied to your fear and reverence of the Lord. So regardless of what your background may be like and how smart you are and how educated you are, none of the things of the wisdom of the Lord is tied to those. It's tied to how do you respond to a true knowledge of God. And I share this with you because even Christians can have an unhealthy relationship with Jesus, an unhealthy relationship with their God because they don't know these things. And so today I want to start with some foundational thoughts, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This is going to mess with some of your theology, especially for those of you that came from backgrounds that I, I'm going to use the term that may be rather legalistic in its background. And, and here's the other thing. I'm going, to, I'm going to throw this out there at the beginning. 
I am going to introduce some things to you today that some of you, if you don't listen to the rest of this series, you're going to think I'm a heretic. I am not. But you're going to have to finish the series with me so that God can begin to unclutter your hearts and minds about some things so that he can rebuild a proper understanding of who he is so that we can have a healthy relationship with him and we can learn to walk in wisdom. So I'm only going to get through part of one point today. So here's your point. What is God like? See, it's a, just a small topic, <laughs> just a really little one. What is God like? This is a very important question that each of us must answer because it is the foundation of our theology. And when I'm talking about theology, I'm talking about a belief system about God that informs the way we live it out. We each have a theology. Even people that don't believe there's a God have a theology. And so we are forming our theology, and, the, the, and our core values are birthed out of this. And then we live on mission based on the way that we view God and our relationship with him. This happened this week. Some of you may already know about it, but CNN host Don Lemon, in the middle of talking about the controversies of all the statues that are going on, he made this statement on live TV. Jesus Christ, if, if you believe in, if that's who you want to believe in, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he lived his life here on earth. Statement made on TV. He used the term admittedly as if Jesus admitted that he was not perfect. Now, for those of you that are being discipled by a 24-hour news cycle, and believe me, we live in a day and age where people are choosing their theology based on the news that they are hearing... They may draw a conclusion that my Savior was less than perfect when he lived on this earth. And we, we come to recognize that if, if Don Lemon is right, then Jesus cannot be the divine Son of God. He cannot be our Savior, for his death would have paid for his own sins and not mine. And we know that that's not true according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. We know the Bible teaches that Jesus had no sin according to 1 Peter 2 that he was holy and blameless and unstained by sin, according to Hebrews chapter 7, that he was a, a lamb without blemish or spot, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, and that he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, according to Hebrews 4.15. So Jesus Christ was perfect. Perfection was at the core of his substitutionary work for me on the cross. And we understand that. We understand that our salvation is granted because of the perfection of Jesus when he walked on this earth. So here is a, a CNN reporter. And as I did a little history and digging on his life, I found that he was raised in a Christian home. But he chose a lifestyle contrary to what the Word of God states. So he's created a theology that allows him to live in such a way that he wants to live because it's a false view of who God really is. And so if he can make God less than divine, then he is justified in creating his own lifestyle. And that's happening all around us. People are creating a theology that's not based on the Word of God. Dr. A.R. Bernard was speaking at Abundant Life Christian Center a year ago on the east side of Syracuse, and he was addressing the topic of what is God like, and he had some profound insights that I'm tying into my message today, and I want to make sure that, that uh, I give him credit for that. But we are living in a culture today that there are a lot of people that know just enough about God to be mad at him. Think about it. 
How many times do people approach you when they find out that you're a child of God, and the first question is, how can God, boom, 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 based on, boom, boom, and they become mad at him? And so when you examine people's attitude toward God, you realize that they suffer from a lack of knowledge about God. In fact, in Hosea 4, 6, it said, my people are destroyed. Whose people? God's people. He's, he's talking to God's people. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. In other words, there are some theological falsehoods that are seeping into the church that make their way into our life, and then we begin to live out a philosophy of what our theology is like that's based on false information. So many today are unable to have a healthy relationship with God because they do not understand what God is like. So practical theology is what we take of our knowledge of God and we apply it to our life. And I want you to know something. The longer you live for the Lord and the more you walk with Him, the more you're practiced, the way you practice theology changes. You learn more about God and it changes the way you live. We see this lived out in real life with parents and grandparents. Grandparents are way more patient with their grandkids than they were with their children. In fact, they say things like, if I'd have known it was this fun, I'd have started as a grandparent. But they practice life differently. We do the same thing in our walk with God as we grow with Him. And if you listen closely to the way that people describe God, you would conclude that God, the God they serve, is in need of therapy. Because people don't know God the way they should, and they describe Him in terms that would lead one to believe that God has a multiple personality disorder. So I want to talk to you about the beginning of wisdom the introduction to what wisdom is. But in order to do that, I need to introduce to you a biblical truth about our knowledge of God to start us on this journey. One of the things that's challenging to believers is the humanizing of God, the humanizing of God. We anthropomorphize God. And when you anthropomorphize something, you literally attribute human personality and human behavior to something that is not human. And we do it all the time. We anthropomorphize pets. How many of you have ever seen Dr. Pohl, the veterinarian that's programs on TV? I was laughing the other day because after he did an operation on some pets, he sends them back out and the parents, the pet parents are out there, oh, my baby, please come to mama. You know, and and they, they assume the language of humanizing their pets. And, and, you know, I'm bringing your baby back. I'm looking at him going, that DNA is all messed up in there, if, that, if that's true about that. Listen, how many of you have a name for your automobile? Some people are going, I'm not going to raise my hand until I look around. You know, I had a Honda named Horatio. How many of you have ever yelled at your car for not starting in the morning as if it had a choice? <laughs> fewer and fewer hands are going up. Listen, Disney has changed the way our world thinks about things. An expert at this. People now walk into my office and see my deer heads on the wall and say this to me, how could you kill Bambi? I said, I didn't know they had names. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Mickey Mouse? Minnie Mouse? Goofy? So what do they take on? They take on human personality. They talk. 
They tell you that if I were human, this is how I would feel and think. And the problem with that is it's humans telling other humans what a talking mouse would feel like if it were human and then dresses it up in human clothes with funny ears. So we look at life, and this has infiltrated even our vision and view of God. It's something that we recognize that we give a human viewpoint to, that if this mouse was human, this is what he would say, and this is the way he would act, and this is how it would feel. And so many times we live our lives. How many of you talk to inanimate objects? It's okay. This is a safe place for you today. It happened to me this week. I hit a golf ball and was instantly very discouraged by the direction it was going. And I yelled at it as if it could hear me and obey. So we attribute human characteristics and personality and feelings to things to express another point of view that this is the way it would be if it were human. But guess what? The anthropomorphization of God is a method that the Old Testament writers of Scripture employed to express in human terms what God would think or feel or how he would respond if he were human. But God is not human. And so in the Old Testament, we read things like this. In Genesis 6, it repented God that he made man. In other words, it's almost as if God changed his mind after he did something and, oh, I didn't see that coming. Or, how many of you have heard this term? God is a jealous God. We hear that, and in our mind, jealousy is represented by green, and so we think we have this green, jealous God who's just mad. Or we read that in the days of Noah, mankind grieved God or Noah's faith pleased God. So we have all of this language that gives the appearance that God functions as a human being. But here are some problems with that. Number one, God has nothing to be jealous of. None of us have anything that he wants. He's not competing with us for the affections of things. There's nothing about us that God would be jealous of. Or we get to this. Scripture says, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means that God is impassable. Now, that is a term which means that God does not have a mood that changes depending upon the actions of his creation. Now, let that just sink in for a minute. Because this is where it's going to start to mess with your old-time Christian mind. God does not have a mood that changes based upon the actions of his creation. And the reason we know that is because God is omniscient, which means he is all-knowing, which means he does not arrive at stages of knowledge and information like we do. There is nothing more that he can learn. There's nothing that we can teach him. So there's no need for him to change his mind because from the beginning of time he had already arrived at a just and righteous conclusion because he's had all the information for all time. So God doesn't change his mind. And he doesn't go through a process to get somewhere like we do. Dr. A.R. Bernard puts it this way. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God. 
For us, that's important to know because God does not grow more enlightened the more our culture changes. Think about that. God does not grow more enlightened because of our culture changes. And if we could not provoke God to jealousy, then it means that God's existence is not subject to our actions. Because if his mood changed based on our behavior, then he would be subject to us. That would mean God would have good days and bad days. And when you begin to think about that, with 8 billion people, he would be on an emotional roller coaster and God would be in need of counseling if we determine the mood of God. And so we read in the Old Testament language that presents him in human form, and it's simply to help us understand that if he were human, this is how he would respond. And when Jesus came to the earth, it was a hypostatic union. It was the perfect union of the divinity of God matching up with the humanity of us. And in this, we hear this, Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't lose the divinity to come to us. He gained a sense of humanity for our understanding. So Jesus in his humanity experienced the whole gamut of emotions that we as humans experience. That's why in Hebrews 4.15 it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. He's touched. He feels touched by our weaknesses. But he does that in his divinity, which is very important because he didn't have to go through stages of anything to learn more about us. And so here's the important part of that. If your understanding of God is that he only feels joy when you do well, or he experiences sorrow when you blow it, then your idea of God is one that his entire existence is entirely based upon your behavior. And that belief system, that theology would reduce God to being dependent upon his creation's goodness in order to function well. And that's the theology we live in today. Many people feel that way. So here's where it comes on a relational level. If you think that God goes through this emotional roller coaster of response, then you can rightly conclude that God is mad at you. You'll look at the world around you, and you will determine God is mad, and he's mad at me. How many of you ever felt that, that God is mad at me? You can be honest. I raised both my hands. There's things that we go through in life, and in those instances, we think it's happening because God is mad at me. And as a result of that, it affects our relationship with him because if we feel that somebody is upset with us, then we know that that feeling of upset creates distance. And we believe that if God is mad at us, then he steps away from us, creating a distance as if God is giving us the cold shoulder until we get it right. And so what happens then is we step back from that and we start thinking, what do I need to do now that will help me get back in God's good graces so that he will change his mind and not be angry at me anymore and allow me to live in favor? And so we sit back and go, you know, okay, I, I, I really messed up, so I'm going to do something good so that God will go, hey, that was good. Or we say, listen, I'm just going to give God a few days. I'm just, maybe he'll get over it. Maybe he'll just forget about it all. But that is not our God. And because he is impassable, 
Because he is consistent in his character, he can love us redemptively. He can love us sacrificially. And listen to this. He can love us unconditionally. Which means to know God means that he loves you for no reason. He loves you for no reason. Because if he had reasons, the conditions of those reasons could change and his love could change. But because it's unconditional, the beginning of wisdom is understanding that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do that will make God love me less. And people are struggling and confused about this in their knowledge of God, and they struggle in their relationship with him because they are constantly in their theology reducing him to human. And if you do that, you're going to have the same relationship problems with God that you have with other people. Now, some of you in your mind are thinking, uh, Pastor Doug, are you going to clarify with the unconditional love that that just doesn't mean that everybody gets to go to heaven? I told you I'm going to open a door here today that you're going to need to finish walking with me. Yes, we will, because there is an aspect of God's unconditional love does not mean that if you do not choose to respond to the one way that you can get to heaven through Jesus Christ that you'll get there. It just means that while you're on this earth, his love for you never changes. He's not mad at you. He's not unhappy with you. He is God, and he is not human. But it does require a response of us. Worship team, if you please come. So we start this journey in Proverbs 9, 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So here's the world we live in. We were having this discussion at a graduation party yesterday that there was a passage of Scripture that Pastor Julie was talking to the kids about where Philip baptizes a eunuch and then instantly is transported from the middle of a mud puddle in the desert to a street corner in Azotus. And she was talking about it just the same word used in that passage as the word used to rapture us. And she said, and the kids just stood there like, yeah, that's no big deal. We see that on TV all the time. We have reduced God in the theology of our world today to a superhuman superhero. We've reduced him to human with superpowers that he is to respond to on our command. Is it any wonder then why we have a world full of incorrect theology about God that they then practice out in their life? So church, we're divinely located for such a time as this. This is our moment where we who grow in the knowledge of God can demonstrate the love of the Lord to a rapidly changing culture. For somebody my age, that scares me to death. On the other side of it, there's the excitement of knowing that the anointing of the Holy Spirit prepares us for just such this moment. And so we'll walk in excitement together. Would you stand with me, please? Our world is lacking wisdom. They're incapable of making wise decisions because of their faulty theology and their faulty knowledge of God. 
And I pray that in the middle of all of this, that we don't justify the way that we live that is contrary to what the Word of God says because we've lowered our God to a station of humanness because His knowledge and His power and His presence is unsurpassed because He is God. Let's sing this together. excited to go on this journey see what it feels like to begin to formulate for many of you it's not beginning you've done it for life formulate a proper theology of what God is like and how we are to live and then from that birth wise living wise words wise responses Heavenly Father I pray for a group of people today that the overwhelming number of them today we raised our hands at times because we thought you were mad at us we also live in a world where people do not want to receive God because they think that he's mad at them or they're mad at God because he didn't come through in the way they thought he should. And you've told us, Lord, that our wisdom, the way we live our life is not associated with our intelligence or our education. It's associated directly to our fear and reverence of you and that from that births a proper knowledge of God. So God. Would you help those that are listening today online or those that are here today that have just been struggling in their relationship with you because they have humanized you. They have assigned to you qualities and not the best qualities. And as a result of that, we have diminished your divinity. We've diminished your godhood. May we re-elevate you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lead us and guide us into all truth, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.